Welcome y bienvenidos to About Consent, the podcast that sparks conversations about creating consent culture, boundary repair, sexual empowerment, orgasm equality, and raising a new sexually conscious and consent-empowered generation. This is a safe, shame-free, judgment-free zone where both survivors and those who support survivors are welcome. I'm your host, Rosalia Rivera. My friends, let me just start by saying that this is an episode you will want to put on repeat because the guest that I have today dropped some really golden knowledge that can help you empower your family, protect your kids from child sex trafficking. Now, I want to just start by saying that if you think that this does not pertain to you, I want to challenge you to reconsider, pause your thinking, and have an open mind and listen carefully because if you have kids between the ages of zero and 18, then this episode is for you. So please tune in because today I am uh, having a conversation with Aaron Williamson. Aaron is the Vice President of Global Programs and Strategy for Love 146 and is responsible for leading the development, implementation, and operation of Love 146's U.S. Survivor Care and Prevention Education programs. Erin has over 20 years of direct service program management and applied research experience in the fields of social service and criminal justice with a particular expertise in the areas of human trafficking and child sexual exploitation. She has a master's in public administration and is a licensed clinical social worker. Erin also sits on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services National Advisory Committee on the sex trafficking of children and youth in the United States. So needless to say, Erin is a wealth of information and you're gonna find out very quickly um, how she shares this so wonderfully for us to learn uh, what we need to know, what we need to look out for, how we can start to really implement this information to protect our kids. Uh, I do wanna say there is a trigger warning with this. We are obviously talking about Uh, child sex trafficking and exploitation and how that can happen. So I just want to uh, remind you that if you are not in a mental state to be listening to this, please put it on pause and come back to it when you are in the mental state to be able to listen. Uh, It is super valuable information. And I always remind parents that if right now is not the right time for you to listen to it, that's okay. But please do circle back because If there is any time to know this information, it is now with this pandemic raging and what it is causing in terms of the spikes, uh, the the increase in trafficking that is happening in the US in particular, in Canada, really all over the world, worldwide. But if you live in the US, this will be particularly pertinent to you, but you can still learn so much about the strategies that any predator globally could be using. So whatever part of the world you're listening to, this can still be very valuable information for you. So 
without further ado, here is my interview with Erin Williamson of Love 146. Erin, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you here. I've been following Love 146 for a fair bit now and love everything that the organization is doing. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. I you know, have been following you, so I know the story of how Love 146 was created, but I would love for you to share that with the audience so that they can understand why um, I, I particularly found the story really touching and a little heart-wrenching, as with any you know, story of how these kinds of organizations get founded, because they do start with something you know, that, that impacted someone in, in some kind of way, and then they took action. And I love hearing that. I love when people you know, connect with something in, on such a deep level that they make their mission. You know? So can you share the story of how the Love 146 organization got started? Sure, sure. So our co-founders um, found like had heard about human trafficking uh, back in the early 2000s, and like many many people, um, had heard about trafficking as it relates to kind of over there. So so really had heard about it in Southeast Asia, and so took some trips to Southeast Asia to find out more about what was happening on the ground and and what they could do to support um, efforts there to combat trafficking. And as part of this work, they went actually undercover with another organization that um, part of their mission was kind of doing identification and rescuing and really helping law enforcement there identify where trafficking was taking place so they could intervene. And um, they went undercover. Uh, our our uh, current president and CEO went uh, and really posed as a buyer, a purchaser which is not something that you know we recommend the lay person do, um, but this was back when really uh, nothing was really happening or very little was happening. And so he went into a brothel and uh, was really stunned by what he saw, which was very young girls, um, fairly young girls, all dressed in red um, and all behind uh, a one-way mirror. So what he saw was he saw the girls, there's kind of the assumption that what they were seeing was a mirror, although we don't know that for sure. Um, and there was a TV playing with cartoons. Oh my God. And, and most of the youth were kind of staring off at the TV with kind of a vacant you know, look in their eyes. Uh, and the, the buyers were given menus and really those menus had girls numbers. They each, each of the girls had a number pinned to them. And the, the buyers were given menus with the girls numbers and the cost for various sexual acts. And there was one girl in particular who, unlike the other girls who were kind of looking at the TV was looking forward. And, um, and, and this girl really uh, touched the heart of our co-founder, uh, Rob Morris. And, um, you know, they collected the information they needed to and shared it with police. Unfortunately, uh, a couple of weeks later, when the police did go to do the raid of this brothel, uh, the girl, somebody had tipped them off and the girls were all gone. And so um, he decided at that moment to really take action and to dedicate his life to this issue. And that girl's number, the number that was pinned to her was 146. And so he named the organization Love 146 in both in honor of that individual who touched his heart, but also it's a constant reminder to all of us who work with Love 146 that 
you know, when we talk about trafficking, we talk about kind of this issue, but at the individual level, this is impacting children. Um, and for them, this is their life and it's a major impact on their life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that, uh, because you gave more detail than I had had known about that particular situation, but it gives me chills, you know, to imagine a young girl, you know, you can imagine that they had an understanding that, you know, these people were looking at them and somebody was on the other side of that. And she was, you know, maybe through just that eye contact, trying to plea, you know, for help, right. For, for someone to see her humanity. And fortunately, you know, the president of, of Love 146 currently, right, did that. And he saw her humanity. And from that came this. So yeah, that's just such a powerful story to me. Um, and I know that there are other organizations, you know, where they've talked about having come close to these kinds of situations, not being aware of what they were, and starting to do the research or the investigation of like, how do I you know, find out more about this and do something about it, right? But the fact that this was like so intentional to go undercover and do this, you know, I mean, that can be so scary, you know, and as you said, we don't recommend the lay person to go off and do this, but to have that level of dedication to say, I want to know more about this and how can I, you know, help. So just so much respect for um, all the members of your organization and how you are bringing awareness to this issue, but even more importantly, um, how you're actually impacting the lives of survivors, right? And, and I would love to dive into some of that um, to share, like, how does your organization actually help? Can you share a little bit about that? And then we'll dive into some of the questions that I know a lot of the audience listening to this may have about specifically child sex trafficking, which, which I know a lot of organizations who work with human trafficking, uh, deal with it on a broad level of like, you know, cause human trafficking is bigger than just sex, sex exploitation or, or sex trafficking, but you really focus on child sex trafficking. So um, can you share how you help uh, what you do in the world and how your uh, organization impacts people? Absolutely, yeah. And I, I like that word intentionality because I think that the uh, organization was started with intentionality, but I also think that we try to grow and implement our programs with that same intentionality. Um, and that has really kind of been the hallmark of Love 146 and how we have implemented. And so right now we have survivor care services in the Philippines, in the UK, and here in Connecticut in the United States. And one of the things that we've been really intentional about is that each of those programs are run by local experts. And so the program in the Philippines is run by a Filipino woman. The program in the UK is run by someone who, who lives in the UK and grew up. And here in the United States, I actually was the one that started our survivor care program. Here in the United States, like you said, we're really focused on um, child sex trafficking as it relates to our survivor care program. Primarily that's because that's who we're identifying in the United States. We're primarily identifying here in Connecticut uh, victims of child sex trafficking. In the Philippines, our work is um, with both sex and labor, although primarily sex. And we're also dealing with a lot of kids who are exploited online. So a lot of kids where their exploitation actually happened at the hands of their parents, but was directed by individuals online. And then in the UK, we do actually work with a number of labor trafficking, um, children of labor trafficking. 
who were trafficked from overseas into the UK as well as sex trafficking. And so our programs look a little different in each of the locations, but they were implemented with the same intentionality and with local experts. So we really take a community approach where we go to local experts and we say, what are you seeing in your community and how can we help grow and support the victims in your community? That's, that's so fantastic. And I, I remember being on a conference call a while back, um, I think over the summer maybe, and it was uh, a global conference. And they talked about that, how it's really important for local members, right, to be spearheading because they know the landscape and they understand what's happening on the ground there versus someone just coming in and saying like, this is how it should be done. So I love that that's part of the strategy that you use for that. So can you share a little bit about what the survivor, um, like how you work with survivors in the US? Sure, absolutely. Um, so we work across the state of Connecticut. Anyone can make a referral to our program. So we do get a lot of referrals from our child welfare department, from our juvenile justice department, but we also get referrals from community-based service providers, from law enforcement. We've gotten referrals from parents who are concerned about their children. Um, we're actually starting to get referrals from kids referring other kids that they have concerns about, which um, in some ways we're most excited about that because when youth are vouching for the credibility of your program, it, it definitely says something, especially yeah. that we do. So we go in, um, our first point of contact is uh, to just provide information and safety planning. Uh, we have a lot of youth that are referred to us where the victimization is not confirmed, but it's suspected. And so we, we don't say that a youth is a confirmed survivor unless either they've disclosed or law enforcement has. So a lot of times we're you know, going and meeting with a youth and trying to, you know, have a conversation. You can imagine to, to them where another provider coming into their lives to talk about a super sensitive topic. Um, one of the things I'm most proud about is our um, social workers ability to engage with this population. We've done over 500 what we call rapid responses where we provide information and safety planning. Um, and over the I think we're now six years of this program. Only two youth have ever actually refused our services once we've been able to get in front of them. And one of those youth came back into our services later on. About half of those youth who receive information and safety planning are then referred to our long-term services. And that's where we really work intensely with youth. We work with them for about three to four hours every week. Uh, we create a care plan based on their individual needs, their individual goals. A lot of those goals are around re-engaging them back into the educational system. Many of our youth are still maybe attending, but not regularly attending school. Some of them have dropped out of school. Some are regularly attending school. And we work with them to, you know, to kind of decipher all the systems and figure out what their individual needs are. What are the things that the trafficker was using to exploit them? Um, so was it that uh, they lacked friends? Was it that they were in the foster care system and they wanted to create a family? Was it um, a desire? Did they need to have their basic needs met? Um, and so we really find out what were the vulnerabilities that the traffickers were preying on and, and work with youth to try to find other ways to meet those vulnerabilities. We're an incentive-based program. So we set out goals and measurable objectives. And then as the youth achieve those things, 
just like you would with your children and I do with mine, we celebrate those achievements. So, um, you know, oftentimes we're taking them out to have new experiences that they might not have had. We've taken youth to concerts and to professional sporting events, um, really kind of showing them other uh, things and other ways to enjoy life and, and exposing them to new things. And we just recently this year actually expanded our services to include supporting post-secondary education. So we're, we were seeing a lot of success getting our youth high school degrees, but then not a lot of them were going on for certification or post-secondary education and, um, and employment services. So we know that you know one of the ways to prevent re-victimization is to make sure that these youth can live lives that are economically independent. That's greatly important for all youth and so, or in all individuals. And so one of the things we wanna make sure is that these youth in particular have not just jobs, but careers that they can advance throughout their lives. That is amazing. I love that there is so much, to use that word again, intentionality about how these programs uh, are executed and how they're really impacting because this is where that re-victimization can happen if there isn't a real strategy for how to get these survivors, right, back on track in a really empowered way. And I am all for empowering kids and especially those who have suffered any kind of abuse, they need that additional help that, you know, we talk about, you know, getting kids counseling and, and therapy and things like that. And that's, that's great. That's one piece of it. But when it's, we're talking about trafficking, there's this whole other level of how to help them overcome that shame that they may feel, which certainly does not belong to them, um, but also to get them to really stand on their own two feet eventually so that they don't fall into that, you know, again, that re-victimization pattern that, that is, is very clear also for child sex abuse survivors, even if they're not trafficking survivors, that line is still there of how if it happened back then and they didn't heal and they weren't able to share or talk about it, that they can become victims again and, and really vulnerable to predators in the future. So kudos to the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for that. And this is one of the reasons why I also wanted to bring you on to the podcast was to let people know this, when people donate to organizations like this, this is what they're donating to. They're donating to programs that are helping survivors reclaim their lives. And, you know, I'm just so passionate about the work that you're doing and organizations like yours that really help kids in particular, um, you know, kids who have gone through the, these traumas and can really just move forward in such a powerful way. So that's amazing. Now I, I want to shift gears and talk about the meaning of child sex trafficking, because I think, you know, people have so many misconceptions. And I know that 2020 did bring to light a lot of, you know, the, the uh, this topic in particular, but it's such a broad, like, you know, we've said it's, there's labor trafficking, there's sex trafficking, there's child sex trafficking. Can you give some clarity for those who want to understand what those differences are between uh, you know, human trafficking, uh, sex trafficking, and then specifically child sex trafficking and exploitation. Yeah, no, and it it does become confusing. There's a lot of terminology. I, I come from DC and, and, you know, have lived in the land of alphabet soup with all the acronyms. So uh, yeah, human trafficking is kind of this umbrella term that covers a lot of things. And, and really, 
it typically breaks down into labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And the key kind of verbs that are important around trafficking are force, fraud, and coercion. And so under the law, you have to be able to prove force, fraud, and coercion as it relates to either labor trafficking or sex trafficking. One of the really important things to remember about children, though, is that it, it, like you said, it is different, especially as it relates to sex trafficking, because you actually don't have to be able to prove force, fraud, or coercion. So any, what we call any commercial sex act, so any act in which there is an exchange of a sex act for anything of value. And we've seen it, we have seen it for money, we've seen it for drugs, we've seen it for rent, food, we've honestly even started seeing it for car rides. So anything like that falls under the definition of sex trafficking. And so it really is a fairly broad term. And I think a lot of people think that you have to have this third party trafficker in order for that youth to be considered a trafficking victim. And you actually don't. We do work with a lot of youth where there is a third party trafficker that's kind of coordinating the exchange. But we also work with a lot of youth where that's not the case where they're just being exploited by somebody who recognizes this is a youth that either has an emotional need or a basic physical need, and they use that need against them to exploit them. Yeah, and and it's so unfortunate that so few kids are being educated about that. You know, I think there's um, a gap for parents to understand how to have these conversations and how to even talk about it, which is why starting abuse prevention education as early as possible is so key for parents to even learn how to recognize those signs of grooming or even signs of if trafficking is happening in their own homes, like without them even realizing, right? Um, There's so many things to look for. And I recently, um, I think it was in September or October that I did a training through the Safe House Projects uh, on Watch program and learned more about, you know, what are the signs that the parents can look for. So I, I recommend that anyone who's listening who wants to learn more about what those signs are. And just in general, I think we should all be educated about it because you may see someone on the street, you know, or at a store with a kid who may not be theirs or is theirs, but they're behaving oddly. And, and you, if you know what signs to look for, you can do something about it and, and to know what to do about it. Right. So I, I highly encourage anyone to get more education on this. Um, do you offer anything like that? Cause I, I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't sure if you did or not. So I just want to confirm. We have resources on our website for parents. Um, We do offer, we do have a prevention education program called Not a Number. That's a national program where we train facilitators to go into schools, to go into community centers, to provide prevention education. I think one of the important things uh, that we often don't talk about when we think about parents and education is that, you know, one out of four women and one out of six men have been sexually abused themselves. And so a lot of the parents that we're working with have also been victims. And so oftentimes when we're working with, uh, with the youth that we work with, we might hear a parent say, uh, either, oh my gosh, I, this ha- sim- something happened to me and I swore it would never happen to my child. How could this have happened? Or we can sometimes hear the opposite, which is it happened to me and I got over it and they should get over it. And so part of it is when, you, when you're working with a child, you really also have to tap into what that parent needs. Because if, like you said, if they have not dealt with their own victimization, 
they sometimes have a trouble separating their victimization from their child. And so actually one of the ways that we're gonna be looking to grow our program in the near future is to start implementing a two generation model where now that we have trusting relationships with the youth that we work with, some of the youth are going and have started getting to the age where they're having their own children. But many of them aren't sure about parenting, right? Aren't sure when do you have these discussions? How do you have these discussions? And so what we wanna start doing in the near future is open up birth to five services with a specific focus on this population. That's amazing. That's fantastic. And please let me know if there's any way I can help with that, because that's, I think, where we start to break these cycles is as early as possible before, you know, people become parents. But if they haven't done that healing, and they're at that stage, and a lot of times that's triggered by, you know, the age of when the child's, you know, when when they were abused, and then it gets triggered. And a lot of times, it just becomes like, automatic default of wanting to overprotect and not knowing how to educate. And then it still happens because they weren't educated about what to look for outside of their own experience, right? So I think that's so powerful. And I love that you have the intention of doing that in the future. So one of the other questions that I, I wanted to ask you is because people don't really know how trafficking can happen with children, you know, there's just this idea, I think, still very much ingrained in people's minds that it's usually like a kidnapping situation or, you know, some kind of scenario that they've seen in a movie. Can you talk about what are the different ways that children can be trafficked? you know, let's start with maybe the youngest and move up because, you know, it, it can happen at any age. Um, and so I think parents need to have a clearer understanding of how that can happen. Can you share some of that? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I do think that the movie stereotypes, well, movies have done a great job in bringing kind of general awareness. Unfortunately, they've created some harmful stereotypes that, um, that can really skew people's uh, understanding of this issue. So typically in the United States, because it does look different in every country, but typically in the United States, when it's a young child, a prepubescent child, um, we're seeing a lot of the trafficking happen at the hands of families or relatives. Um, sometimes this is because the families and relatives can't meet their basic needs. Sometimes this is because there's issues of drug addiction in the family. Um, it can happen for a whole host of reasons. Although we, I will say that um, there's no demographic that's immune to trafficking. And we have seen um, fairly affluent, uh, you know, well-to-do families traffic their own children who don't need um, resources and, and, um, and other things motivate that type of trafficking. As we get into kind of pre-adolescence and adolescent trafficking, we're not seeing as much family trafficking, although we still do sometimes see it. Um, we oftentimes see kind of the older partner, right? The individual who recognizes that um, adolescence is an age where a lot of people are, you know, becoming romantically interested in individuals, uh, maybe don't feel like they fit in. I think that's a, a, you know, most of us during adolescence experience some sense that we didn't fit in with our peers. And traffickers know that and, and they utilize that. And so, you know, they'll, they will ingratiate themselves with the adolescent. Now this can happen in person, but it can also happen online. We see, we are seeing a lot of grooming and recruitment happen online. Social media platforms, Facebook 
is still, even though people say Facebook is, you know, not the cool thing, we are still seeing the large majority of our youth have their first encounter with their trafficker on Facebook. And so, you know, a trafficker will uh, make themselves seem safe. They will friend request as many kids as they can. They'll go to a, some, a local school, just randomly friend request kids that say they go to that school. Some people will say no, but many kids will say yes. And then they friend request all of their friends. So by the time they're friend requesting your child, it looks like they have 30 mutual friends. It looks like they live in the town over. You know, it, it looks like they should be a quote unquote safe person. And so there's oftentimes where youth will say, I, you know, this is how I keep myself safe online. And they don't understand how traffickers infiltrate that, um, you know, safety net that they think they've created for themselves. But traffickers have also been, um, you know, people of authority. They've been people um, within the schools. They've been people within sports arenas. They've been landlords. We've seen a number of landlords traffic kids. And then we've seen friends actually traffic each other, um, you know, older friends trafficking younger friends. And so I, I really say this to mean like it can be anybody. Um, and, and we really have to broaden our understanding. Also, a lot of times there's this misconception that kids are forced into it. And it's very similar to domestic violence. Um, you know, there might be elements of force. Many of our kids do experience physical violence as part of their trafficking, but a lot of times it's the emotional abuse that keeps them uh, in their situations. It's the traffickers who work very early on in their grooming and recruitment to tell them, you know, no one's gonna love you like I do. No one's gonna treat you like I do. No one cares about you. And then once they've exploited that child to say, what do you think they're gonna think of you? What do you, you think you can just go back to normal life? You can't go back to normal life. What are the names they're gonna call you when you go back to school? And unfortunately, sometimes what the traffickers say is gonna happen does happen to our youth, which then causes them to feel like maybe they're right and I don't fit in anymore. And so that's why it's really important. One of the things that our program does is it follows youth no matter where they go and for the long haul. This is not a type of victimization where you can do a short intervention and think that everything is okay. You know, oftentimes we do see youth who struggle uh, six months, a year, two years later. And so one of the unique things about Love 146 is we never close a case. Youth can always reach back out no matter their age to receive additional services and support, even if it's helping them get a referral to whatever supports they need that are appropriate at that point in their life. But I think um, when we look at red flags, we really have to think about what is a child doing that is different from what they used to previously do. And unfortunately, oftentimes the first thought parents have or even school personnel have is drugs, right? Now they're sleeping in school. They're not attending every class anymore. They're not regular. Their grades are dropping. They're hanging out with different people. And we were from our generation, I think we're so used to going drugs, it must be drugs, when in reality, we need to also start thinking, could this be trafficking as well? Because that is also what's happening during this generation. Wow. Okay. So that that was so much valuable information that I just feel like I, I learned so much just now as well. So um, I, I think this is the, the thing that a lot of parents need to understand is that there are so many layers to this and you have to keep educating yourself about this because unfortunately, this is one of the crimes that is on the rise. And it's one of the biggest crimes that people have been 
asleep about, you know, and, and I think now that we're finally uh, waking up to how big of a problem this is, how potentially uh, problematic it can be in all of our communities, if we're not paying attention and if we don't know, if we're not educating ourselves, like we can totally miss this, miss this. And just like you said, parents may think it's this other thing. Meanwhile, it could be actually that it's trafficking. Um, and and I, I think it's so important that parents understand how vulnerable teens and tweens are because of these vulnerabilities that, you know, as you said, exploiters and traffickers know what they are, you know, what are they lacking? How could they be filling those gaps and, and really um, grooming the children, you know, grooming these kids, right? It's really just a different form of grooming. Um, when I talk about abuse prevention, I teach parents that you have to educate yourself about the signs of grooming. And this typically applies to people that they know because it's typically, you know, when it's younger children, um, you know, we know that 90% of abuse happens at the hands of people that a child knows and trusts and, and that the family knows and trusts, right? So when it moves on to when kids are older and they're starting to go off into the world more and more on their own, do the kids then know how to recognize those signs and how parents can also recognize if there's a shift in behavior or a pattern? We really need to educate kids um, about grooming, about the potential for trafficking and, and to also build them up as people, right? So this is like something that we need to work on as early as possible is to really strengthen those connections that we have with our kids in terms of being honest with them um, so that they feel that they can trust us back to share things that they may feel like I made a mistake and now what do I do? My parents aren't going to accept me. If we've nurtured and had those conversations throughout their young lives, right? They will know that there's nothing that anyone can tell them that would make them think their parents would never love them. So, uh, you know, that, that I always say when I talk about abuse prevention, I'm also talking about good parenting and that's certainly not to shame anyone who feels like they're, you know, cause I know everybody has parent guilt of like, am I doing good enough? Am I being a good parent? It's not about that. It's just about having the communication to consistently ongoing, regular conversations about safety, honesty, and about that unconditional love that we have for our children, not just by saying it, but by demonstrating it, because that's really what's going to help them have security in their family system that they can always go to for help. Um, and I talk at length about creating safety networks for that reason. You know, parents need to learn how to create safety networks that their kids have a blueprint for how to access that help, right? So not to get off topic, but I really loved everything that you were just saying, because if we don't know this information, if we don't learn it, we really put our kids at risk. So thank you so much for sharing that. And this kind of piggybacks on that, which is that, you know, recently I learned about the term of love bombing and the term Romeo pimps. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? Um, you know, I've talked about it on my Instagram, anybody who's interested in learning about that. Um, but I would love for you to go a little bit more in depth if you can to give more information to parents who've never heard those terms. Yeah, and I will say the, the the terminology changes all the time. And so that's one of the, the most important things I think is, you know, you're not going to necessarily know the terms. And so knowing kind of the what generally happens is, is really critical. 
So, you know, a Romeo pimp is, is really that guy who's just, you know, he's suave. He's, and, and I will say traffickers can be both male and female. I don't want to just give the impression that traffickers are only male. We see, we have seen a number of female traffickers. We've also seen a number of couples trafficking with the idea that they're the parental figures, right? They're offering a family, a made family for the, for the youth. But, you know, typically it's, it's when we talk about that term Romeo pimp, it's the guy who comes in very suave um, and, and really r romanticizes the, the youth, you know, tells them all the things that we all wanted to hear. We all, you know, many of us, even as adults would want to hear, you know, you're more mature than the other kids your age, or I wouldn't even say kids, the other, the other girls your age. Um, you're so different than all of the other individuals I've met. You know, it's, I, I just, you're so beautiful. I love you so much. And, and really ingratiates themselves to think we're going to build a life together. This is not just about a, a short-term relationship. It's you and me against the world and we're going to build a life. And as part of becoming this, this idealized romantic partner, they also start pulling them away from their friends and family. And so, you know, one of the things that, that we notice, you know, drama happens in adolescence, right? And uh, when drama happens, the typical response is, I gotta tell someone about this. I gotta talk to somebody. Well, initially that individual might call their friends. Maybe they do have a good relationship with their parents. They call them, but their friends and parents aren't always available. But a romantic uh, pimp will always be available. And so what starts to slowly happen is that that's the individual that the child turns to to share the story because they don't have to explain the backstory of what happened three days ago because that, in, that person already knows it. And so they start pulling away from their friends and family and forming a really tighter bond with that individual. And then that individual starts utilizing it against them. You know, if you really loved me, you would try this. If you really loved me, you would spend one night out with me. Just tell your parents you're staying at so-and-so's house. You know, and again, starts pulling and starts testing the, the boundaries around how much is that individual willing and also able to get away with in their household, right? Like you said, asking questions, I oftentimes explain to my kids, it's not that I don't trust you, it, but it is that um, my, part of my job is to keep you safe. And that part of my job is to ask questions and to make sure that what you're telling me is true and make sure that what you're telling me is right and make sure that you're safe there. And so, you know, they're going to test, you know, what happens when they sneak out of the house? What happens when um, they get the tattoo that their parents didn't want them to get? And so again, it's this change in behavior that parents oftentimes think of as drugs, but is really a trafficker trying to figure out how much can I get away with? And one of the things traffickers will say is that once they can flip a, a youth, you know, once they get them exploited for the first time, every other time after that is just is much easier. It becomes easier and easier. It's like a snowball going downhill, right? Once you get that first little snow, it just picks up steam. And then by the time it's really rolling and the youth is thinking, oh my gosh, this is not okay. This is not what I wanted. I didn't sign up for this. Well, then the trafficker says, you know, you're already a snowball. You're already, and uses all these derogatory words. What do you think your parents are gonna say? What do you think they're gonna do? 
I do want to mention the the online grooming and recruitment a little bit that you mentioned because it is different when they become adolescents and it is different when they go online and you no longer know who their friends are and know who they're talking about. And I think that as a parents, we make a mistake to um, not talk about online the online world until they actually get a phone or get a device. Um, and the reality is, you know, my oldest is in third grade. He knows what YouTube is. He knows what these platforms are because his friends are on these platforms and he comes home. And so you have to start having conversations about on the online world really young so that by the time they do get a device, which I don't think a third grader should have a device, just so we're clear, um, they know that there are dangerous things online. They know that there's going to be rules around their online um, activities. And they know that why you're doing that is to protect them. Like I said, kids are very savvy. They're very, they can have, you know, a lot of parents will say, but I'm friends with my kid on Facebook or we're connected on Instagram they could have seven accounts. They can share things with their friends that you'll never see, even though you're friends with them. There are a thousand ways to manipulate what you are seeing in their tech world. And so, like you said, you really do have to teach them the skills to be able to navigate and identify when something might be grooming and recruitment. And you really also have to instill in them that if something does happen, it is not their fault. It is that somebody else took advantage of them. And I, I often say to youth, you know, there is nothing you could tell me that you are doing that makes this your fault. That is 100% the fault of the person who abused you. And really instilling that in them and also instilling this idea of non-judgment. You know, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be concerned. It doesn't mean that there might not be talks and, and even consequences to some of the actions that they did. But it does mean that you're, you're going to approach it in a non-judgmental manner and you're going to figure it out together as a family. All right. You are going to have to come back for a second episode because we have so much more to dig into. I just loved everything that you just said because uh, it, it goes along with, the, you know, everything that I teach and to especially teach kids that even if they made a mistake, right, even if they, they did something that you specifically told them they shouldn't do, I think this is a lot of times why youth is afraid to come to parents to say, oh, like, you know, my mom and dad told me not to do this. I did it anyway. Now I'm in trouble. And I don't, you know, I don't want to go to them because they're going to get mad or who knows what they're going to, they're going to take my phone away or they're going to ground me forever. And they are afraid, more afraid of your response than of, of the situation that they're in that they don't realize could continue escalating, right? Because they don't have a perception of how far this thing can go. And so, you know, the, the advice that you just gave is so valuable. And I want parents to really think about that who are listening today and to have these conversations, you know, if you aren't sure where to start, uh, you know, reach out to, um, there's so many places. I mean, there's, besides obviously consent parenting, there are so many organizations, Mama Bear Effect, uh, Darkness to Light. Uh, if you're in Canada, the, the Children's, um, you know, Protection uh, Center, like there's just so many ways that we can learn about this. So I don't want anyone to say, well, I, you know, I can't sign up for this or I can't do that because it costs, there's lots of free information. You can, you know, go through my whole Instagram account. I talk about all of this, you know, all of the stuff that I have in my programs is already available on Instagram for free. It's there for people to read and learn and educate themselves. I get on a soapbox because I hear these stories and it just crushes my heart to know 
that kids are so vulnerable and parents don't know what to do and they stay stuck in inaction because they don't know where to start, right? And, and there's so many ways to start. The first thing is to look at, you know, how have I helped my child know that I'm always a safe person, that they can always come to me no matter what, that I'm having these conversations on an ongoing basis, not just like once a year where, you know, I remember and then have the conversation. How can I be instilling this in? And much to your point, am I teaching them about online safety? Because the reality is our world, our, our world is an online world now. Our children are moving you know, every single day more and more in that direction. And if we're not being smart about how we're teaching them to be safe online, besides just sort of the like basics, you know, don't give out private information, don't make friends with, you know, strangers, like there are so many situations. And here's the, here's one thing that I think a lot of parents don't realize is that traffickers are communicating with other traffickers and there are online predator communities in the dark web or even online, you know, even, you know, we undercover, like they've called themselves something else, but they're really just these predator communities that are teaching each other how to get access to your kids, how to, uh, you know, abuse them and how to get away with it. So if we as parents don't get on board with creating those same kind of communities about how to keep our kids safe, about how to teach them the right things and, you know, how to be aware of what we need to look for, right? Then we are letting those people win. So I just want to implore everyone who's listening today, please take this very seriously. Don't think that it's something that is only happening overseas or that's happening in someone else's neighborhood because it could be happening in your own home. It could be happening to, you know, kids as young, you know, infants, because unfortunately, parents can traffic also online just by abusing their kids, filming it and selling that. That now makes it human trafficking all the way up to, you know, a 17 year old who is, you know, in a romantic relationship with someone that they met and you don't realize that that's actually an unsafe relationship. So Please, everyone who's listening, educate yourself, learn more about the organizations that can help you do that. Love 146 is one of them. Erin, we have to have you back. There's so much more that I want to talk about. And we're recording this right now in January, which is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. But one of the reasons um, I wanted to record this now is because I want to keep having this conversation throughout the year. It is not just in January that we need to be talking about this. Uh, is there anything that you would love to share before we wrap up? Because I, you know, I still have so many questions, so I will ask you to come back. You have, you know, so much to share, but what would you like to leave parents with? What kind of action can they take today, uh, you know, to, to do something more to protect their kids? Absolutely. I, I would love to come back. Um, I think there's a couple of things. I think, you know, educating yourself, that's the most important thing as a parent that you can do. Um, I also think, and I say this not just to parents, but I'm assuming that some of the people that are listening might be social workers, might be in the helping profession. You know, once you educate yourself about this topic, it is so 
uh, we're so quick to say, I should have. I sh oh, that's what was happening with this youth or with this child. Oh, that's what, you know, the kid that was in my class because I'm a teacher was, was happening. I never thought about this. And I, and I really uh, encourage people to not get stuck in the guilt and the should haves, but to think of this as an opportunity to move forward and, and to have more knowledge and to improve the future. Um, you know, there's a, a thousand things that we wish we knew in our past that, um, that we didn't, but you do have an opportunity to make a difference in your own children's lives, in the lives of their friends, um, in the lives of family members who are still children, um, and then the lives of your community. And, and really, knowledge is power when it comes to trafficking. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how can people connect with you, uh, with your organization? How can they either uh, donate, uh, learn from you, contribute, volunteer? What, how can people connect? Sure. Our website has the hub of, of all of that information. If they go to love146.org, uh, they can sign up for our, yeah, our newsletters and our emails. They can make a donation. They can learn more about our programs and, and what we offer. Uh, there's a wealth of information on that website. It is a great website. I, I do have to say, you know, I, I visit many websites about organizations like this, and I really love yours. It has uh, a wealth of resources, information, and please consider donating because they are doing amazing work to help those survivors to reclaim their lives. And that is what we need. You know, I, I know that the statistic, which correct me if I'm wrong, but is 1% of survivors are actually managed to come out of trafficking. Is that true? So that it's really hard with trafficking. There's really, the numbers are really hard in terms of statistics about the scope and, and coming out. I, and then, so I don't want to speak to kind of that statistic in particular. I will say that uh, for youth that go through our survivor care program and successfully complete it, one of the statistics that we're the most happy about um, are that we have we about double their engagement in education, and um, and that we're seeing more and more kids go on to college than we um, than we were initially. And so that's a really amazing statistic that we're seeing. We're also seeing kids who, when we first meet them, will have. 5,000 friends on Facebook, but not be able to identify an, a single adult that they could turn to, or more than three kids that they could turn to if they were in an emergency. And that number greatly increases for kids that go through our long-term services as well. And so, you know, I think it is a, it's a long-term journey with these youth, um, but it's about making, increasing their social connectedness, increasing their ties, increasing their skill sets and ability to live independently and uh, the hope is that as we continue to build them up and empower them and give them the resources that they need, that they will be able to go on and to live successful lives free of all sorts of victimization, not just trafficking, but we also want them to live free of a partner violence, free of any type of abuse and violence. And so yeah. that's really our long-term goal. That's awesome. And I, and I love that you have a long-term program because I know that um, for uh, that's one of the problems that I've seen many times is that, you know, they will come out, they'll get some help, and then they don't have any additional support that is long term and will revert back to what they know, right? And unfortunately, it's, it's typically abusive situations. So I think that's amazing. So yeah, for anyone listening, if you want to donate to this, this amazing organization, um, all of the links will be in the show notes. So make sure that you follow them. They're also on Instagram, posting regularly some awesome content and videos, which I will be 
be sharing many of those as well on my Instagram account. So, uh, you know, just make sure that you are following them. If you are an Instagram user, please screenshot this and tag us in your stories and let us know what was your biggest takeaway? What did you learn? What are you going to implement? How are you going to take action on this information? If you know me, you know I'm all about taking action. So let us know how this impacted you and how you are going to do something about this issue, either in your home, your community, or with those people around you. So thank you again so much, Erin, for being here, for sharing all of this. And I am looking forward to having you back again. So thanks for being here. Thank you. All right, listeners. So we will see you in the next episode. Be sure to subscribe and share this with anyone who you think could benefit from this information. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Don't miss the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And I would be so grateful if you took one minute to post a five-star rating and reviews on iTunes so that others can also find this information. I will be shouting you out and thanking you on the next episode. If you found this useful, be sure to share it with others as well. Let's continue to create consent culture, one conversation at a time. Stay empowered.